I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, February 11th, 2020. Coming up, we'll explore the science and the hype of stem cell therapies and other forms of so-called regenerative medicine with science journalist Laura Beal. We'll discuss how we all can better grasp and decode scientific research in order to be more informed and engaged citizens. That's with Alex Witsey, a science writer who is a contributor to a new book called The Craft of Science Writing. Thanks for listening to How on Earth. I'm Susan Moran. We'll skip headlines today to allow more time for our two feature interviews. So with its many Uber athletes and aging athletes, Colorado has become a popular hub of medical clinics that practice what's called regenerative medicine. One of the popular treatments they offer is stem cell injections. That's to repair and rebuild a range of ailing body parts and conditions, especially cartilages and joints. The treatment is often billed as a way to prevent or at least forestall surgery. The science behind such practices is still emerging, but the marketing claims that medical clinics put out would suggest otherwise. And there is so far very little federal oversight of these practices, which patients pay for mostly out of pocket because insurance companies don't cover them. Our guest today is Laura Beal. She's a science journalist based in Texas, and she wrote a recent cover article in the magazine Science News about the wide gap between the hope and the hype of stem cell treatments. Laura also produces a podcast called Bad Batch. It's about a dubious stem cell clinic in California. Laura, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you for the invitation. So I wanted to jump in first. If you could just define what is stem cell treatment? And I know there are other kinds of regenerative medicine, platelet-rich plasma, prolotherapies, but we're going to focus today on stem cell treatment. And, And what kinds of conditions and diseases is it meant to address? So broadly speaking, stem cell, using stem cells in medicine, it's the idea that you could take stem cells, which uh, by definition are cells that can differentiate into different kinds of tissues, um, you can, wherever they're placed, this, this is a theory, um, that you could place those in the body and then they could regrow or replenish or uh, reestablish diseased tissues. So an example you gave of cartilage, instead of, uh, you know, when you have osteoarthritis and your cartilage starts to uh, degenerate, that the promise of stem cell medicine is that you could give these stem cells and they could regrow your cartilage and then and solve your disease instead of just managing the symptoms. That's the idea of it. Yeah, and the stem cells themselves, and their various sources, the more controversial has been embryonic stem cell, little of that is actually applied now, right? Like where, where do they come from in the body? So the stem cells from the advertisements that you see and from the clinics, they come from three main sources. Two of them are from your own body. So they can come from bone marrow where a doctor will extract bone marrow and, and, um, uh, and extract a bone marrow fraction and then take the uh, stem cells from the bone marrow. Uh, they're also in your fat tissue, which is removed with liposuction, and then they use uh, different enzymes to isolate uh, the stem cells. Or they can come from donated birth products, like cord blood, where it's actually taken from uh, a newborn baby. From the and umbilical then, cord? 
from the umbilical cord. Sometimes they're taken from other birth tissues, but the but uh, umbilical cord is really common. And again, they kind of isolate the stem cells from from the tissue and then package those into some kind of injection that then is kind of sold off the shelf to anybody who wants to administer it. Now, that said, um, this field is so controversial that there's even, you know, there's even a lot of uh, discussion as to whether the cells that are being used in this industry could even be called stem cells. Why is that? Because they don't necessarily have a, have all the properties that stem cells have. To you know, so there's there's a whole movement right now to change the name of these from uh, mesenchymal stem cells, which is kind of the mainstay of the industry, to actually mesenchymal stromal cells, which is a whole other discussion. But just to say that it's a very this is a very controversial field. And in beyond the semantics, if it's stromal and not stem cell. Could it still do the same thing, or if well, that's it, the, with that's the semantics comes a whole kind of discrediting, or is that an affirmation that it's right, actually not working some, to begin with? Yeah, so that's that's part of the controversy is hmm. that if it's being called a stem cell but it's not a stem cell, is that also like doing a service to the patient who? Um, when you pay your money for this, you are under the understanding that it's a stem cell and it's going to regrow your cartilage. I mean, that's the marketing. Uh, even if it's even if it's implied, that's what people generally expect. So, give a little snapshot of where the scientific research is now. I know it's not monolithic, but sort of what is the cutting edge, and and with that, where is the promise? So it is very promising. I mean, that's one thing I have to be careful of it in in this field. It, it it remains a very very promising and exciting field of research, uh, and and the idea is still there that it could really uh, instead of treating the symptoms of your disease that it could that it could cure it. So I want to say that right away. I'm not to, knocking the field. It, it's 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 really. It, it's really, really very exciting. Uh, but where the science is now, um, it hasn't yet, there haven't yet been a lot of placebo-controlled studies uh, that really show that it can have the effect that people want. For example, there, there hasn't been research demonstrating that it can actually regrow cartilage in people and have that cartilage function like the cartilage you were born with. I mean, that still hasn't been uh, demonstrated. And there are certainly a lot of studies that show it can relieve pain uh, that look like it can relieve pain, but we still don't even understand why that is. It, it, you know, what is it doing? Does it have some kind of anti-inflammatory property that's relieving your pain, or is it doing something else in the body? I so mean, it sounds we, like there is some rep replicable evidence that it does some good, right? But is it just not clear how, or even the former is not clear? Um, right. So there's, they're all signs that it, it can do some good, but it's not clear. So the questions that science tries to answer are, you know, how much good does it do? Who's the best candidate? How do we administer it? Uh, how much do you administer? All of these things that science has to work out really haven't been established yet. Yeah, and I appreciate how you say you're not saying it's all hogwash, but there's still this big gap between the marketing and the actual science. Right. So, so from my point of view, as a you know, as as uh, trying to serve the public with information, um, so there's not um, 
yet a guarantee that you could pay your five thousand or ten thousand dollars and walk into a clinic and have it help you. It might, or it might help the next person. I mean, we don't know enough about it. But so my goal is just to have people ask questions before they try it and, and to make a more informed choice. You know, and, and if you and if you realize all these caveats, but you're still suffering, and you're like, well, I want to give it a shot anyway, then then that's fine. I mean, my goal in my reporting and in the podcast is just to try to help people make a more informed decision about whether you know whether they want to to spend their life savings. Uh, for an attempt at this therapy. And it can be very expensive. So you've spoken with many stem cell researchers, those who are kind of at the bleeding edge of this research. And one of them, I'm going to play a clip from, this is uh, Dr. Sean Morrison at University of Texas, and talking about really kind of this gap between the hype, what's being sold, and what's actually known. So let's, we're going to play it for a bit. They're not numbers that people can kind of dream up and defend on the back of an envelope. So in the absence of published clinical trials, I don't know how one would make an argument about one dose over another. And I guess I should back up and give a little context for that. What are some of the claims and how are these clinics getting their information about the claims? Right. So what he was referring to in, when I was working on Bad Batch on the podcast is I went to a lot of seminars, which is really a huge source of information. You'll see ads in social media or in newspapers. They pop up and come to this free seminar and learn about stem cells, and they're hugely popular. And And I went to several of them, and they all kind of have the same vibe. It feels like uh, if you've ever been in a timeshare pitch, it kind of has that... <laughs> You know, that, that same, you know, you're in this hotel room and maybe they give you snacks and, and they're talking about how great stem cells are. And, and offering discounts if you bring in friends and family. Yeah. Exactly. Sign up today. We'll give you a discount. And so, and, and they make, they all make very, um, you know, very wild claims. And so what Dr. Morrison was re- referring to is um, actually for one clinic, I got a hold of something that they call the dosing chart. And it was basically um, started off with general arthritis claims, like for a wrist or a knee, you need this many stem cells. But then, but then it went up to, I mean, they make claims for all kinds of diseases, you know, up to neuropathy and autism and multiple sclerosis and Lyme disease. But the basic formula on the dosing chart was, uh, from what I could gather, it was simple multiplication. The more complicated the illness, the higher the dose. You know, which is not how science works. And so that's what he was referring to, was like, you can't just say, oh, okay, well, it's this many for a knee, but if you've got a really complicated disease like like multiple sclerosis, then you give this many. I mean, that's that's not how science works, and that's what he was referring to. The worse the condition or the disease, you just need more and pay us more. Um, Exactly. You also... um, Talk about, in fact, you open your article in Science News with a pretty extreme case of what you'd call downsides or side effects. Describe that briefly and then how prevalent is that? How much of a concern is that? So this was a woman who who paid $30,000 out of her husband's retirement uh, for, uh, for arthritis. She had some injections into her shoulder and into her back. And... And she began to notice pretty quickly thereafter some 
side effects. Now, it hasn't been studied to be able to, I have to say the caveat, directly attributed to it, but it did happen right after, and she had not had these symptoms before. Um, and so she was in a lot of pain, and she tried to get her money back. She's tried to... Um, you know, find help and 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 she hasn't and she hasn't been able to, and so I include her as a cautionary tale because she's not the kind of patient that you see on the websites advertising it, <laughs> and and the truth is we really don't know how many people end up with side effects from from stem cells. The the people who sell it like to say, oh, well, they you know we really you know there's only a few cases documented and we don't know about. Them. But the truth is that nobody's really looking because most of these patients get this treatment not within a clinical trial where they're being followed and monitored for side effects. So people like Joanna, the woman in the study, she's not in any kind of uh, she's not in any kind of, of documented research. Mm-hmm. So you would never know if she hadn't if I hadn't written about her, she would just be one of the many people that we don't know about. Interesting. So that's, in a way, to be fair. So many clinics, medical clinics, do not offer that kind of data. It's pretty hard to find like, what have been the downsides, what percentage of say, back surgery. The data. It's not the but I mean, not just it. stem cell. I think it's I think it's kind of broad throughout medicine, yes. but maybe more yes. so with this. So we just have time for another question. I really want to ask you about federal oversight and in this case, lack thereof. I know last year the uh, Federal Drug Administration issued a warning saying that unproven stem cell therapies can be harmful and may be illegal and unproven. But it's not just the illegal and unproven, right? I mean, wh- wh- I guess I should ask, wh- what is the state of federal oversight of what's happening now? So the FDA kind of gets beaten up from all sides. So on the one hand, they get uh, flack for, uh, you know, trying to keep, uh, supposedly keep, you know, promising therapies away from people because they get mired in all these different regulations and rules. And on the other hand, they get beaten up for not doing enough to to try to shut down these shady operators. Um, When it comes to these stem cell clinics, I think they're just overwhelmed. I mean, there's so many of them. I mean, there's probably more than a thousand clinics, and that doesn't even include, like, doctors or chiropractors who may be doing stem cells. In fact, one of your podcasts, Uh, you name Whack-A-Mole, right? Kind of yes, like yes. Trying to <laughs> right. track and them so and they can't them. really, even though there are regulations, they can't, you know, really keep up with, um, you know, how many people are out there. And they have to concentrate their efforts on, on those operations where they think people are really in danger of being harmed. Um, you know, like, I mean, people are having this injected into their brains. So it's <laughs> like, you know, or infused into their brains. So, you know, or the people were blinded when it was injected into their eyes. So they, they have to really focus on those those situations that I think are most dangerous. So if you're just in danger of losing your retirement, paying for it, you know, that, that really is not something at this moment that they can that they can really make a priority. Now, they've told all these operations that they have until uh, later this year to come into compliance with the law, and we'll see, we'll see if that happens. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. So much more to discuss about this. We'll definitely have future shows on regenerative medicine and would love to bring you back. Thanks so much, Laura. Oh, thank you. That was Laura Beal. She's a science journalist who covers science, the science and the hype of regenerative medicine, along with other topics. We'll link to her recent science news article about stem cell practices on our website, howonearthradio.org, and to her podcast, Bad Batch. 
are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. So most of you out there are clearly curious about science, but many of you may not have a degree in science and thus might find it intimidating and confusing trying to understand whether certain assertions, whether about stem cell treatments, nutritional supplements, coronavirus for that matter, or climate change are scientifically proven. For that matter, you may wonder how you can be certain that sources of information are credible or not. A new book called The Craft of Science Writing offers lots of information on how to understand and translate and act on scientific research. It's aimed largely at science journalists, but it's surely applicable to anyone who wants to make science more accessible. Our next guest is Alex Witsey. She's a science writer who lives here in Boulder, and she's a contributor to the new book on science writing. We had her on the show a few years ago regarding a book that she co-wrote called Island on Fire, the extraordinary story of a forgotten volcano. Welcome back to the show, Alex. Good morning, and thank you for having me. And in this case, it's hardly the heat, but the snow. Thank you for braving. I know you live in the mountains. Thanks for braving the snow to get here. So I wanted to ask you for overall context. So it's at a time when the current administration has been, to say the least, attacking science, denying and reinventing facts themselves, and stripping scientific evidence from government agency reports and regulations. So it seems like it's as important a time as ever that not only journalists, but the broader public better understand and translate scientific research. Tell me, so how does the book, The Craft of Science Writing, address this? Well, this book addresses a lot of things. It's it's aimed, as Joel said, at writers per se, but there are, I think, a lot of lessons for just ordinary people for how to wade through all this information that's out there, information and misinformation. Both science and journalism share a lot in common. We're both sort of pushing towards an ultimate truth. We're both sort of testing hypotheses. We're trying to wade through what's out there and really drive at uh, what are the forces kind of shaping society today, our universe, our society, what are the stories that matter. And Laura, I think, just gave a great example of that in the way that she's been able to pick through all the hype surrounding stem cell treatments to really get at some of the underlying issues. This book, The Craft of Science Writing, has a number of tips. It's broken down by chapters like how do you learn statistics so that you can wade your way through medical stories? Um, you know, How do you tackle a difficult interview? So say perhaps you want to go to your local planning board and have an argument about maybe some environmental contamination. We as journalists will game out how to do those difficult interviews, as you know very mm -hmm. well, being an interviewer. Maybe we've got a flowchart for when things go wrong. So this book, The Craft of Science Writing, has sort of uh, very practical tips, chapter by chapter, how to do difficult interviews, how to find statistics, how to wade your way through a scientific paper and find the right information. And Joel, you're kind of a hybrid being uh, a astrophysicist and here a journalist. I, I am a hybrid, part yeah. battery, part scientist, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, actually, I was just thinking this is probably a good book for scientists to read about <laughs> writing their science papers. Um, I know sometimes, even in my field, some papers are hard to read. And I know when I write a paper, I don't write it with the public in mind. I'm writing it for other scientists, so I don't shy away from jargon and certain assumptions about what the reader knows. That's how they're written, I think, generally. So 
how do you take that and be the intermediary? How do you read that scientific paper and translate to something that non-specialists read? Certainly. So there's there's many ways in which science journalists go about getting information about science and, and reporting on it and, and writing about it for the public. But as you mentioned, Joel, the scientific paper, which is the, the peer-reviewed material that comes out, is kind of the bread and butter of how scientists do their work. People say, go look at my papers. So my chapter in this book, The Craft of Science Writing, talks about how to work your way through what looks like an, an impenetrable maze of jargon, <laughs> which of course never happens in your papers, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad that you acknowledged that. Um, and, and there are sort of you know, tips for... So the ordinary person might look at this and freak out and be like, oh no, what is basal reflectivity? Well, it's not just the jargon, but you may have very complex equations trying to explain something and you have to translate that into words as well. Okay, so spoiler, I don't read the equations. <laughs> what I do well, read... Well, <laughs> ask any scientist and, you know, you may have a 50-50. You just cut off your mic. No. <laughs> what I do read is I do read the abstract, which is the overview of, of what the paper's about and why it's important. I do look at the figures, which are the, the scientific figures, which are technical, but often contain the heart of the discovery. I look at the conclusions that they're making and think about, are you are the conclusions supported by what you're saying? Um, I look at, uh, are there other ways of looking at this question that this paper doesn't? Uh, are there sources of data that the scientists could have tapped into that they didn't? Um, are there perspectives that are not included? I look at the references, which is the list of scientific papers at the end of other people in the field who have done similar stuff. But I also do independent research in... You can go to Google Scholar. You don't have to have a library university subscription to get at least abstracts of related papers. And I do that because, of course, I know, Joel, you would never leave out a competitor in your in your <laughs> reference list. But scientists leave out information that they don't like and that doesn't support their And a lot of scientists will go to the reference list first to see if their papers are referenced. But it, it's... It, I mean, that's really good guideline because a lot of scientists do that as well. They'll look at maybe the abstract first and then just go to the figures and look at the figures and the captions. Then if they think they want more detail, they'll go into that. And I think that's a general reading technique for scientific papers that would be great to let many people know. Yeah, so I think, first of all, thank God, a little plug for journalists, science journalists, who are not just the intermediaries and the translators, but those who actually dig deeper on a deeper level for the public. So let's say for many listeners out there who are not doing this day-to-day -day science journalists, what are some of the, I don't know, two or three ways, let's just take coronavirus, for instance. Um, it's rapidly unfolding, tough to get a sense of what is going on. But if you really want to know, not just what is the CDC saying today about warnings and locations, but how is the science evolving? And maybe there's not a specific paper that's referenced, but what's a good way for general readership, listenership, to go about how to tease it out, how to find out what, what's, what's new and what's real? So coronavirus is a great example. I haven't been reporting on it myself, but there is so much fast-paced science coming out, and there's, there's incorrect science coming out, because as things evolve, people have hypotheses, uh, they're putting ideas out there about maybe where this virus come from that maybe seems right two days ago, but maybe isn't right today. Maybe there's been a new genetic analysis between, between then and now. Um, in a case like that, uh, journalists, and I think the public, just uh, the main thing to do is to try and stay on top because everything changes every day. You cannot read something three days ago and think it still reflects the reality today. Mm. Check what the CDC and the WHO are saying now. Look every single day at 
uh, you know, the abstracts or the um, the archive sites that have the medical papers coming out. You cannot expect that information that was reliable two days ago is still good. And you cannot expect that whatever you're seeing on Facebook is true. Like, know right. what are credible sources to begin with. That's huge in terms of just science literacy, media literacy. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I was just thinking that that's one aspect of science in general that sometimes people have a hard time grasping is it does change. It has a conclusion. More evidence comes in. It gets analyzed. And if it passes the sniff test and peer review, it changes. And I I think that's difficult for the public sometimes to follow. And how, as a journalist, do you balance that between uh, what would be called the slippery slope of, oh, we can't trust science at all because it's always changing? So I'm always th- I'm always thinking about that question, and uh, w- one of the lessons in this in this book, and also that I do in my daily practice, is I ask what parts of the story are not being told, what part of the story is not being presented to me in this particular paper or this particular press release, what part of the story has changed since we last saw it. Um, It's super critical to get an incredibly broad perspective on what's happening. Don't just trust the one piece of information that's being put forward to you as a press release. Call Call other scientists in the field. If I talk to them two weeks ago, maybe I'll call them again because maybe the story has changed since then. I do believe that there's an ultimate truth out there and that Science in general is trustworthy, although there are, of course, instances where it is misused, as Laura has pointed out. Um, But the key information is to look for multiple diverse sources of information constantly. Scientists are human. They'll have their biases. The more you get, the more you'll average out and find what is the common thread. I really believe that. And I think it's really important to note that, as you alluded to, science is iterative, like the stem cell, it's not that, okay, it's all snake oil, let's just close the door now, but it's evolving and watch it evolve. Well, so much more on this topic. Thank you so much, Alex, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That was Alex Witsey. She's a science writer who lives in Boulder and is a contributor to the new book, The Craft of Science Writing, which we'll link to on the website, howonearthradio.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by me, Susan Moran, and engineered by my co-host, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Lori Anderson. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.